I'm Katherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. Tears of Eden, a nonprofit supporting survivors of spiritual abuse from the evangelical community and home of the Uncertain podcast, is hosting its first in-person retreat con October 20th through 22nd. This retreat con will have the intimacy of a retreat with the intentionality of a conference. In partnership with the I Got Out movement, the retreat con will also feature a special event story jam highlighting survivor stories live and in person. Registration is currently open and spots are limited. Sign up with a link in the show notes. This podcast and the work of Tears of Eden are supported by the generosity of listeners like you. If you'd like to see the work of Tears of Eden continue, consider giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly supporter. You can do that by visiting tearsofeden.org support. Anna Baim is a journalist with Reckon News who has been covering the intersection of faith, sex, and politics since December 2020. In this episode, we discuss the complexity of covering these typically emotionally charged subjects. We also discuss how Anna's story of growing up in conservative evangelicalism informs her reporting. Here's my interview with Anna Baim. I'm really excited about today because I don't know what possessed me last night to go look in my Google Drive from college, but I found <laughs> I found an entire outline I wrote for a women's devotional when oh. I was 19 years old. <laughs> and it was like all these talking points against feminism. And I'm like, ooh, honey, little did she know. Little did she know what she would learn about. They get you and they get you really young. They do. And I I, I know I told you before that I, or I think I told you this, I actually interviewed Josh Harris for a yeah. piece. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't sure how I was going to react to him. I thought I would just feel rage, you know, because I was just yeah. like, you ruined a a deep part of me (laughs) but I felt nothing but empathy for him and I felt like I was looking at myself and it was the weirdest experience because I was like holy crap that could have been me and now I literally found the outline of like Mm -hmm. kind of like it was already there and like his book was like hitting this cultural moment Mm -hmm. in our time when we were trying to come up with something to counter this narrative from the 60s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, there's also people it's... just like dying from AIDS within a few oh. months after diagnosis, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of fear, like, and, and I recognize that, but also. And it just happened to be him. Yeah. And um, anyway. Set up, set up for the. <laughs> It yeah, so you, Anna, because you're a female, so <laughs> you're exactly right. I would actually needed... wouldn't have been Josh Harris because unfortunately you don't have the right body parts, but but we're gonna talk about all of that today. So I really I loved I love your newsletter, and it's Thank like you. Perfect, it's the perfect newsletter because it's like very bite-sized and it's enough information so that if you want to know more, you can, but you're also mm-hmm. something with just the newsletter. So mm-hmm. I'll put a post the episode, I'll put a link to signing up for the newsletter. And I would encourage folks to, to sign up for it because it's very timely for the audience that this podcast targets with all of the things. Thank you. I've put a lot of thought and intention into the newsletter and there's been a lot of intention into 
you know, the planning of what I want it to be. So, I mean, I have, I have big aspirations, of course, as, as any creator mm -hmm. does, but it's really cool to see the response to it so far. So thank cool. you. Good. It's That's been awesome. really cool. Yeah. I'm really glad. I'm really glad to hear that. Mm -hmm. uh, as a way to get started, would you just kind of share who you are, what you do, super brief, and then we'll jump in. Yeah, totally. So my name is Anna Bame. I am a journalist for a publication called Reckon News. I cover the intersection of fate, sex, and politics in America. And I'm based in Nashville, Tennessee. Cool, cool, cool. So let's just sit with those words, faith, sex, politics. Yeah, Politics. that's like what you're not supposed to talk about at the, at the dinner table, right? Or with, <laughs> or on a first date, or like <gasps> around people you don't know, right? And, and each one of those words causes emotion and people based on where they come from and their experiences. And I know just for myself, each one of those words has like a whole story beneath it. Yeah. So those they're, are they're all very loaded words, truly. And it's been interesting too, because, you know, a lot of times like Facebook and Twitter don't want to promote like tweets or posts that have the word sex in it because of these automatic filters that exist. And so it's like social media is even like, oh, or, uh -huh. eh. mm -hmm. you know, even though sex is such a deep topic for us as human beings. And obviously, you know, sex is a huge industry. The porn is industry is gigantic, like sex sells. It's a human experience that we might just want to talk about, like we'd talk about eating spinach so yeah <laughs> um, yeah but it gets filtered out yeah the little uh, the the word that people are using s-e-g-g-s segs to like oh yes mm -hmm. that. yep I haven't started using it yet but I have I've experimented with it and it, it works seems to work yeah works. okay maybe don't put that in the podcast but I mean or or heck maybe you should because <laughs> I mean, it, it is difficult when it's like I'm trying to have a conversation with people about very deep topics that have very real mental health, emotional health, physical health ramifications tied to it. And it's like, no, don't talk about that. Yes. But it's something we really need to because it's addressing some of the deepest parts of ourselves that we don't like to look at. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm preaching. I'm not preaching, <laughs> but it's like. I don't know. I, I, I feel like as a journalist, it's worthwhile and worth my time and energy to dive into these things and ask questions about it. Mm -hmm. uh, not only for myself as someone who grew up in a very like purity culture environment, but also just for everyone else's sake as well. Yeah. So yeah. that's, that's, that's why I started this because I, I think it's important and I'm yeah. grateful I get to talk about like the three topics that I'm sure make my editors toes curl, you know, like I'm, I'm working on a story I'm going to publish today and it's about pornography. Yeah. And, and even in there, I talk about kink and spanking and the number of Americans who enjoy that. And it's like, holy cow, here we go. <laughs> like right. we're just diving yeah. right in, but. Right. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about what sort of topics you end up covering and, and what that entails for you. What do you end up working on? Yeah. So really my, my entry into this beat was writing about purity culture, specifically like white evangelical 
versions of purity culture. Purity culture is far more expansive than that, but we'll get to that later. But other things that I've covered related to this are like information about sexual health, sex ed, STI, HIV, HPV. I've also covered some of the Church 2 movement, which is kind of a branch of the Me Too movement that is specifically recognizing cases of sexual abuse in church settings. Specifically, Christian is typically how the Church 2 tag is used for like evangelical Christian experiences. I've also covered legislation related to religion, legislation related to sex ed, legislation related to LGBTQ people, which is growing by the year. So this is something like, it's something that is growing. It's growing in our national psyche, I feel like. And that's why this is important. And that's why I write about it. And oh, and the last thing that I had on my list of stuff I cover is like the state of religion in America, because our religious landscape is changing a lot. Yeah. And millennials were the most diverse generation. And now Gen Z is even more diverse than millennials are by a long shot. So our society is changing and America's religious views are changing as well. And I think looking at that data and acknowledging that and trying to understand like, okay, like what's going on? You know, what, what are most Americans feeling and thinking? I think that's valuable and something we should talk about and also something we should just know as people, where people are at. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, and it's changing in real time. It's Mm -hmm. not like, oh, we're going to be here in 10 years. Like, like it's like literally happening right now. And that's, that's a huge subject. Would you say Mm -hmm. that sex was kind of like the foundation and you talk about the intersection between like how faith intersects with that and how politics intersects with that? Yeah. I mean, they all intersect because They just do like here in America, like, you know, churches are tax exempt. That's a whole other topic that we probably won't get into here. But, you know, for a long time, America has been wrestling with this thing of the First Amendment and like, what does freedom of religion mean? And that has varied. Supreme Court rulings on religious issues have varied over time. And that's where there's an intersection where it's like, whoa, this is weird. What's happening here? Same thing with sex ed and sexuality. Like we see now like the gender affirming care bans, efforts to try to keep trans people from being able to change their names or other information. Like there's this, it's an effort to say this ideal, which is, it it, it is driven by a Christian ideal. Hetero. We want to apply that. Yeah. And that's an intersection that I think has a lot of people going like, huh? And then some people are excited about it. So like, what does that mean? Yeah. How do we get in there? So, so yeah, that's what I see as the the intersection of faith, sex and politics. Yeah, that's, I have like, boom, 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 like little, like, <laughs> little like side topics that I want to get on, but, but we'll, we'll hopefully dabble in some of them as we, as we move forward. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just something I'm thinking about a lot right now. I'm working on just a proposal for a memoir about growing up in a cult that conditioned me to ha- get married and have babies. And then what it is now looks like to live a thriving single life. When I was told, like, I am not literally told I am not enough by myself. I need to be right. a man and, and, and have children. And if you can't have children, babies, then you're worthless. Babies. Right. Unless mm-hmm. you can prove that, you know, you're infertile for some reason, you should still have babies. But even then, you're still a subcitizen. Mm-hmm. Um, and and writing about that and just so much of my unpacking of that story is seeing this agenda 
behind this this patriarchal heteronormative perspective it keeps a certain demographic of people in power and so it's not just ignorance that we're dealing with <laughs> and we're not just yeah. with, you know you know residual you know of uh, middle ages like belief systems like we're literally dealing with people who want to stay in power and they need mm. this to to work so that they stay in power and how terrifying that is so there's so many intersections with those with those things. You may already know this, but the Uncertain Podcast is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a nonprofit that serves as a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. This podcast and the work of Tears of Eden are supported by donations from generous listeners like you. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider giving a donation by using the link in the show notes or visiting tearsofeden.org support. You can also support the podcast by rating and leaving a review and sharing on social media. If you're not already following us, please follow us on Facebook at Tears of Eden and Instagram at Uncertain Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And now back to the show. What has been the biggest challenge that you have encountered as you have been writing? I think the one of the biggest challenges is that there's so much to talk about. Like just as we've gotten into this conversation, it's like, oh my gosh, all these ideas are all these things, this touches so many areas. And it's like, it's it's a lot to see and it's a lot to try to digest in a way for people to understand. And when I say for people to understand, that gets to my next thing that I feel like is difficult about this is these topics get at like some of our deepest desires and insecurities and needs like, when you've got like your sexuality over here and eternal damnation over here and you've got to pick one, you know, and, and not everybody views it as that dire of a circumstance, but many people have said that. And if, and for parents who believe that their belief system is the best and the only one, and that may affect how they parent or how they interact with their kids, because they're literally scared of what the eternal future might mean for their child. And but and those are real fears that people have. And when you start asking questions that get at those deep things like your sexuality or even like your interest in like romance or dating or having any sort of like intimacy with anyone as a friend or as a partner, when you poke those things, people react, you know? And I think that's these are just really deep issues. And I, I think there's a reason why this has been such a hot topic in our politics lately, why it's been such a hot topic. I mean, it's just been everywhere, especially since 2016. I feel like all these issues have really bubbled up to the surface more and more. I think those are the biggest challenges, just you know, being able to write in a way that communicates clearly with people about what's going on that addresses all of these deep things that go so unsaid and also just communicating it for everybody to understand because I, I I recognize that I grew up in a very yeah an environment that was very different than most people's I went to a you know a private Christian school so like my concept of like high school and being a teenager was probably different in a lot of ways than other people's because I think it can be easy to write off stuff about like religion or cults or like people with really extreme 
belief systems, it can be easy to write that off as like, oh, those crazy people over there. Right. But that's not, this isn't that situation. Like this is, it's not that at all. And I also think writing off people in that way really devalues not only those people, but the people who may be hurt by those people. Yeah. Because if you feel like, oh, I'm just a victim of one of the crazies, like it washes away any sort of system that you might be able to see that could lead to this or what power structures could change that could keep people safer. So I'm, I really don't like, you know, this, this writing off or this, ah. the, this thing that I see it, I just see it so often, especially like I'm from the South, I'm from Alabama mm -hmm. and I, I see people talk about the South and it's like, oh, well just, you know, oh, you're from the South. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, oh cancel Alabama or like cut right. Florida off. And it's like, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's sure. <laughs> invalidating of just the people who embrace this belief. It's invalidating of the people who've been hurt by that belief. And it's also minimizing the impact that those belief systems have on our modern day culture. These yeah. belief systems are <laughs> super involved. Like politics, like they are so involved in politics. And mm -hmm. They have a lot of money, not all of them, but a lot of them have a lot of money. And mm -hmm. there is there is activity happening that we're, we think, oh, they're just the crazy people. Nothing will ever come of it. But we have seen, just watching the political scene, things have come of it. There is influence happening right now. And yeah, I remember talking about the nonprofit that I run I was in a, like a, a, like a nonprofit, like support membership thing. Mm, yeah. A small group with a few people. And we all just like went around and like shared what we did. And I said, I work with people who have been abused in the church. And this woman immediately said, well, they shouldn't have been involved in church in the first place. And like, well, it's religion's fault. And just like completely like dismissed an entire, like, thousands of victims it's your fault you shouldn't have been you shouldn't have been involved in the church plate church in the first place and just like this i'm like and then also like i'm like feeling invalidated as well as i'm like well i'm one of those people <laughs> hello <laughs> and and just like her premise of like it's religion's fault and you should never have been involved in the first place so it can come from both sides the invalidation can come from, Absolutely. from both places. So I'm so glad that you are stepping into this very sticky, sticky, sticky topic and, and, and just talking about it because just, mm -hmm. just raising, raising awareness. This exists. People are talking about this. People are impacted by this. So that that's awesome. I'm super, super grateful for that. Why we kind of touched on this a little bit, but why do you feel like this intersection is important? Well, this actually gets to another topic that I've not really gotten into yet that I've really been digging into lately is the public health effects of abstinence only sex education and these other, like, for example, here in Tennessee, the Department of Health is going to refuse $10 million worth of CDC funding for HIV prevention. Yes, free money from the federal government. And they're like, we don't need it. <laughs> oh my gosh. So Shelby County, which is where Memphis is in West Tennessee, is like one of the 
top HIV and AIDS hotspots in America. There's also a very high or higher than average population of people living in poverty. Also a high population of people of color living in poverty. Both those things really put you at more risk for HIV. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so the Department of Health announced this and they say they're going to replace that money, but I mean, yeah. this, I, I, I actually did a story on this and I can send you a link, but one organization I talked to, Friends for Life Memphis, they have a prep clinic and a S- STI testing clinic and then another sexual health clinic. And they said that without that money, like the operation of those clinics will be at risk. Wow. And that's like their main outreach tool. It's free services, like usually to get prescribed PrEP. I don't know if people know what PrEP is. I'll just explain Mm -hmm. that very quickly. PrEP is, stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. It is a drug that you take if you are HIV negative. And if you are someone who is at risk for contracting HIV, you can take that medication and it will prevent you from getting HIV. So, and then there's PrEP and then there's also PEP, post-exposure prophylaxis, which is a pill you can take if you know you've been exposed to HIV or you very likely may have in the last few days, you can take this medication and it will keep it from, somehow it it will keep you from getting HIV. And that's amazing. Like the fact (laughs) that that exists is incredible. And typically to get access to things like that, like to get prescribed PrEP, it's like, if you just did it like, the normal way, like walking into a doctor with your mm-hmm. private health insurance, it could take like up to two months to actually get that prescription in your hand. Oh, but really? at these, yes, but at these clinics, you can walk in the door, talk to a doctor and 45 minutes later, walk out with your medication. So, and it's free. And so that service versus like all the hoops you have to jump through in the medical system is really important, especially when you have, when you have people who are maybe don't trust the medical system or they don't have money to go Mm -hmm. to the doctor or they don't have time because they're working three jobs to try to keep a roof over their head. Being able to provide a fast service like that is really important for preventing the spread of HIV and making sure that people know their status. And if they are positive, they get treatment because if people get treatment, like they live long, healthy lives, HIV is no longer a death sentence like it was. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if it goes untreated, I mean, it still will progress to AIDS. But yeah, so like that is one aspect of this public health risk that I see associated with purity culture and anti-LGBTQ views. Also, this was also in my notes, Texas had a bill that would not require private health insurance companies to cover PrEP Mm. for their employees, like employee health insurance, because it could like encourage illegal activity or (laughs) something like it. It was bizarre. I can also send you links to all this stuff. I want to know sounds- the mindset behind or like the reasoning behind why it takes so long to get it when you just go to a regular doctor. Is that because of just like legal red tape associated with it? I don't know fully, but I know that if you've got people who are poor and uninsured. Okay. Yeah. And they're going to the doctor. And, and- they're just like walking in to mm-hmm. a doc in the box and it's like oh well because you have to meet a certain criteria to be prescribed prep got it you can't just I can't I couldn't just walk into a clinic and say hey I would like prep and they're 
because they're going to look at me and they're going to say, okay, like, are you a needle drug user? Mm -hmm. Uh, Are you having the kind of sex that will make you way, Mm -hmm. you know, viable? Are you, have you been exposed to someone or has your partner been exposed? Like Mm -hmm. all these questions and (laughs) I don't meet any of those criteria. And so Mm -hmm. I would not be prescribed it most likely, you know what I'm saying? So there is a structure behind who's prescribed it. Got it. And you're not really tested to see if you could get it. You're just getting it to be preventative. And so yes. there's, not a, there's not a way to know you are at risk for this. Therefore, you must have this medication. There um, are like outlines of like risk factors for HIV that contribute that also kind of influence that list of like qualifications to be prescribed PrEP because the CDC... And the Department of Health. Sorry, we're going way deep into the AIDS conversation. So, um, I'm like, I'm like, like zero. Yeah. I'm like well, so fascinated. <laughs> well, I okay. I as a as a journalist and as a kid who grew up with a lot of questions about sex and sexuality and like, what does all this mean? Why do I feel this way? And the answer I got was, "Don't touch yourself and don't have sex." Mm-hmm. Didn't really answer any of my questions, okay. and so. Like now, see, especially in this amazing digital age where there's just so much information on the internet, so much public data on the internet that you can look at for yourself. It's amazing for me to explore that and be able to like really piece together what's going on. So Ah, sorry, I'm nerding out, but like. Well, no, and it's like, (laughs) like, it wasn't just like, you're ignorant and everyone else around you is ignorant. Like there is a concerted effort to keep you ignorant in these spaces. Like they want you to be ignorant for fear that if you have knowledge, you're gonna do something with it. (laughs) And it's like, well, having this knowledge about HIV and HPV and and all of that sort of thing is is health. It's just like- like, It's basic health. And yeah, like and it's like you say HPV and I I've got several articles I could send you I've written about HPV and I won't go down that rabbit hole if we don't have time but <laughs> there's just so much to talk about because it's like if you tell someone don't get don't give your child this vaccine because it may give them a license to be promiscuous or don't give your child condoms because it will give them a license to be promiscuous it's such a bizarre mentality now. Like my, like my brain, I'm like, that logic doesn't compute anymore, mm-hmm. but I remember it computing. I remember yeah. feeling like, oh yeah, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. It was like, this is what, this is what God wants. This is what my family wants. My church wants this. The adults in my life were telling me this is what is best for me. Yeah. But in America, we could eliminate cervical cancer. Mm-hmm. It could be gone. It's very deadly still here. Like stage four cervical cancer only has a 17% survival rate, five-year yeah. survival rate. We could do away with that with the HPV vaccine, but there has been religious resistance to it because of fears that it will mm-hmm. make girls promiscuous if we prevent them from getting cervical cancer. Mm-hmm. And there were even politicians, this is not in America, but politicians in Australia who were saying like, well, they should be scared of cancer. Like- if they're scared, then good. They shouldn't be having sex. And I'm like, well, yeah, exactly. Dude, it's like, you don't exactly. understand HPV. It's yeah, exactly. And <laughs> like, it like harkens back to the eighties when 
when folks were saying, I don't know if I'll put this on the podcast, but <laughs> when, when folks were saying that it was the, ju- that the rise in age was the judgment of God for people, yes. sex and people. Jerry Falwell. Mm-hmm. But I, I was like, well, if we're going to use that logic, maybe it's the judgment of God on parents for not protecting their kids and educating their kids. Maybe that's the judgment of God if that is the logic we're using here. But on this subject of, of talking about, you know, raising awareness about HPV, HIV, the impact on just national health, what has been some of the responses you have received from people? Good, bad, ugly. What have you gotten from your readers? I mean, have I gotten some negative responses? Yes, I have, as you do. But really, there's been so much good response that I don't know it's that's it feels very rewarding for me after I published that first series on purity culture it included an op-ed about my experience Mm -hmm. and I talk about my wedding night go read the article but had classmates that I had not talked to since graduation night message me and say thank you Mm -hmm. for putting words to how I felt Mm -hmm. at school and I've gotten so many like i I'm like trying to tally in my head right now how many people I've talked to about it. And it's a lot. It's and that's something I never expected. I did. I did get some weird responses from some people. But yeah, it's that the rewarding thing to me is just knowing that there were other people like me and we were all asking those questions. And now I get to be a part of shedding light on what was Mm -hmm. something that we all just like packed away because it was like, ah, ick, what is this? Yeah. So, yeah. And I've gotten very sad responses, gotten responses from people talking about how they were able to find, you know, figure out their sexual ethic after purity culture, people with still with deep questions about their sexual ethic after purity culture. But yeah, so it's it's been a lot of response and, it, and it's really cool. And I love talking to my readers. So please reach out to me. I'm like, it's something that I really, really enjoy as Part of doing this work is talking to people and hearing about their experiences and using that to inform my reporting. Like it's, it's just incredible. So. Yeah. I feel like what you get to do is such a personal part of reporting. It's just, and more personal probably than, I don't know, reporting on a tornado or something. I don't know. It just, it just feels like this is, you're going to be able to have so many personal conversations Mm -hmm. with people and I've reported on both I've reported in disaster areas and I've done this and both hit hard but Mm -hmm. this is a different kind of work yeah because it's like I like I've said so many times like it's just all these issues are so deep that yeah it's deeply personal and it requires vulnerability on my sources part and I feel immense gratitude for anyone who's willing to respond to an email I send them Mm -hmm. or who reaches out to me because I know this stuff is deep and it can feel scary. I've been there, (laughs) you know, but I feel like it's very valuable to share your story. And I'm just, I'm glad I get to be a part of that truly. Yeah, no. And it's just, it's super timely. And I think that I had asked you if there were other reporters like kind of doing the similar thing. And you said that you weren't, you weren't able to like think of anyone off the top of your head that's actually getting to write in the scene. Is that still accurate? I mean, I think I would rephrase that statement because there are people that don't wear the journalism hat, 
like I do. Mm-hmm. Like I have a degree mm-hmm. and a title and a job at a major publication. So like mm-hmm. I'm wearing this official hat, but there've been bloggers, writers, average people with Facebook accounts, Tumblr accounts, talking about this stuff online for a Mm -hmm. long time and for much longer, even before the internet, there's been conversations about all these intersections in our country and what we should know about that and thinking about what, how, how should we respond to those places where those lines get blurry? So yeah, it's just journalists, but unofficial. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's there. And I was trying to like find the right word in my head to, to describe it, but yeah, there's been lots and lots of work going on for a long time before me. It just doesn't look like what you would think of like the institution of journalism. But I do think that I'm someone who offers a unique perspective Mm -hmm. as a woman from the South. And I mean, let's be honest, there's, there's not near enough honest conversation about what's really happening in these communities. Because like we said before, of this thing of like, oh, those crazy people over there, or, oh, you're, you're from Alabama, like, Mm -hmm. whatever, or you should have known not to go to church anyway, there have to be people like me and you Mm -hmm. to be open and very raw with our experience. Not everyone will understand, not everyone will want to understand. But I think, at least for me, the experience of opening up and talking about these things has brought so many other people to me who are asking similar questions and we never would have interacted before. So I want to give people a starting place to to get there, to do this, to talk about that because it's important. I feel like it's important. We take a shot every time I say it's important, but I just feel very strongly about this. <laughs> I love it. This is a new drinking game. As a as a sort of like wrap up the conversation question, what in your story, you've touched on a little bit, but what in your story do you feel like specifically equips you to write in this vein? So this one, this one really made me think, could I have a minute to like think about how to say this? Mm-hmm. So What I think, what aspect of my story I think has equipped me to write about these issues is, I mean, purely my experience. I grew up in a environment with like a very purity culture informed dress code. I was at church every Sunday, went to a Christian school. I tried to not violate the dress code, (laughs) but Despite my best efforts at modesty, that didn't work. And then I was also a virgin on my wedding night. And I I was so anxious about something that is supposed to be so beautiful and healthy. I broke out in hives and it's like, (laughs) you know, because I was always told everything will be great. And then it's like, wait, now I'm like a broken mess. And I'm yeah. anxious. So I feel like my even my own experience of that dissonance of like, whoa, something's happening here that that shouldn't be going on. And it feels weird to think that my my own experience has really informed my reporting, but it, it absolutely has, you know. Yeah. As a as a journalist, you know, I already had that that quest, that quest for truth in me and I applied that here and what I found made me think and I think other people should consider it as well. Did you feel alone 
in your anxiety and like oh, yeah. a story you had heard from anyone else. And so was it a, there's something wrong with me that I feel anxious? Absolutely. Especially when it came to anything about sexuality. Like I thought that I was like, just my perception of myself was so unhealthy and so full of shame and even self-hatred in a way because yeah but like I wasn't going to talk to anybody about what I thought was like the thing that made me a sexual deviant which was like not you know like when you have all of these all this pressure and expectation all these rules about sexuality and when you have someone who's like I really want to try to like do this in earnest it's confusing and it's very lonely because I couldn't have said at 15, Hey, these demonstrations you're doing in sex ed with like tearing paper hearts apart to represent how many times you've had sex. Like that makes me feel bad. I couldn't have said that because feeling bad was normalized. Yeah. And also like, why would I want to resist what was God's best for me Mm -hmm. and this best advice? But it, it did. I did feel something then where I was just like, petrified at thinking about all of these things, but I don't have no words to talk about it. Um, But yeah, I definitely felt alone. It was, it was not, it was not a good feeling and it does feel, hmm, let me think about how to say this too. There's so many people that also felt the same way. So many people, I was just talking to a friend of mine this morning about some of that stuff. And it's like, wow, how do we, yikes, <laughs> you know, it's just so, it's, it's so widespread at this point. And I, it, it does puzzle me when people are like, huh, what, what are you talking about? And I do realize that also <laughs> my environment was very different. Your environment was very different, but this is still reality of what people experience. It feels wacky to you, but it's real. And we have to recognize that to improve people's lives. Absolutely. Yeah. And then the narrative of if you don't have sex before marriage, then marriage will, then your wedding night will be magic. Mm -hmm. It's just a lie. It's just not true. It's not. Mm -hmm. Yes, there are outliers because there are outliers in every situation, but it's just not true. And it takes, sadly, folks like you sharing your story and being like, this didn't go well. This actually <laughs> being miserable. And if I could do it again, I would do something different, you know, just to mm-hmm. just to open up that conversation. And I hear that story all the time. Like you've mm-hmm. heard that story from probably dozens of people. I've heard yeah. that and I guess I'll say for me, like I don't I don't regret waiting, but mm-hmm. I'm really mad that I was as scared as I was. Mm-hmm. Like I had no reason to be so scared mm-hmm. and I was petrified and that's not fair. So yeah, oh, life is not fair, but like, come on, it could have been so much better. There, there are realistic ways we can prepare people that have better health Absolutely. outcomes, better sexual outcomes, even better relationship outcomes. Absolutely. Yeah. The part of my, my book that I'm working on right now was, is talking about when I found out what a clitoris was. I was in my thirties when I found out what a clitoris was. And I knew more about a man's body sexually than I knew about my own body. 
like that was the way that the education was was skewed and Mm -hmm. I'm just like this was robbery robbery I was robbed of something really really important by Mm -hmm. just not teaching about it and yeah I now know my married friends many of my married friends didn't know anything about it either (laughs) like like I'm talking to them now and I'm like they got married not knowing these things either like Mm -hmm. it doesn't magically change once you get married like Mm -hmm. there's still work and understanding and prep like anything else in life and Mm -hmm. and so 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 important and abstinence celibacy that is a choice that someone gets to make Mm -hmm. and they should be able to make that decision from an informed place Mm -hmm. I don't want to do that because not because I'm going to hell Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's going to ruin my marriage because it's just not true it's just not true it's just Mm -hmm. it's a lie yeah. Thing. Any other thoughts as we wrap up? And then I have a fun question. To- I guess the last thing I'll say is like, y'all please subscribe to my newsletter and please reach out to me. My DMs are open in all the places and I would love to chat with y'all. I love questions. If you're angry with me and disagree with me, I would also like to talk to you because sometimes that can turn into a great conversation as well. So yes. slide into my DMs. And subscribe to my newsletter. I'm excited to hear from y'all. I will link to it in the show notes. And then if you have any other articles that are relevant to our conversation that you want to send me, I will also put put in the show notes. Sweet. Um, yeah. So to to end the conversation, is there any like book, movie, TV show, song, some some form of art, one one of them that is meaningful to you right now? Mm. Yeah. So last year I started learning how to play the cello Cool. and the cello is a very interesting instrument and it's very in your body. And like literally in my, in one of my lessons just a few weeks ago, my teacher was asking me, because like you have to sit a certain way and the way your body moves in relation to the cello makes all the difference in how it sounds. Mm-hmm. And it's really fascinating. And my teacher was saying like, why do we sit weird in our chair? Like, why do you hunch over or do your shoulder weird or scrunch up? And I was like, I don't know. And he said, think about all the times as a kid, you were told, don't touch yourself. Don't touch that. Don't touch him. Don't touch her. Sit up straight, cross your legs. And I was just like, ah, (laughs) And so the experience of the cello and learning how to play an instrument that is difficult, but beautiful. And so in your body has been very, very meaningful to me, especially in this time and writing about, about all this. It's been yes. very, very cool. So that is so um, cool. I did not know that about playing the cello, how, how much your body mm-hmm. impacts the sound. And I'm actually, I'm, I'm getting a bass cliff tattoo tomorrow. So um, to, to commemorate that. So what a so good question. Fun. So fun. I'm so excited for you. Oh, and I love cello music. So that's, that's beautiful. And that's, Mm -hmm. yes, that is something that's near and dear to me is how art helps us on our, our healing journeys. And 
That is very oh, yeah. Cool. That's a very visceral experience with art. That's really cool. Thank you for your time. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun. I hope I didn't ramble too much. That was it was but great. if people are intrigued by my rabbit holes, there is so much more where that came from. <laughs> so <laughs> I know. I love doing the interviews where I like am so into the conversation. I'm completely unaware that I'm doing an interview. I like that. Same. I, and I caught myself and I was like, Anna, this is being recorded. <laughs> <laughs> What did I say? <laughs> yeah, so that was great. That was great. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org slash support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Katherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time.